Sometimes we have a narrow definition of how we expect God to work in our lives. We think that he's only going to speak to us in one way or do it do things in one way with certain people. But I find that God uses anything and everything to bring us back to him. That's today on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey folks, it's Karen from the communications team of Tower Hill. Thanks for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. This week, Pastor Jason continues his 12 Stones sermon series with the story of Stephen and how important it is to find rest for your soul. So without further ado, let's kick it off to Jason. 12 Stones, stories that shape our faith. I warned you last week when I got back from vacation that you were due for probably a couple weeks worth of vacation stories. I think this is probably the last one. But it fits into what we're talking about today. So on our vacation, we took a flight with our three kids out from here to LAX. And that's a long flight. You know, parents, and some of you, if you haven't had flown with small children in a while, you're missing out. Right, so you got to make sure that they're, thank God we didn't have an infant. Oh, man, we were so glad. We're, we're beyond that stage. But now we're in the stage of we got to make sure everybody's, everybody's got a device, it's charged, so that they're not fighting over the devices. And then we got the snacks, we got their little snack bins. We got, you do so much just to make it work. So the flight went great, but, you know, it's five, six hours, and we fly into LAX, and then we go to get our rental car. And we go to stand out there to pick up the bus to take us to the rental car. And I notice that there's a large crowd of people. And as we're waiting, I see Avis. Oh, that's not us. Budget, not us. Dollar, not us. I'm not going to say which one it was, but it rhymes with Schmertz. So anyway, (laughs) we're waiting for the Schmertz bus. and, And it just, I mean, it's not coming. Like half an hour in, we're like, What's going on? And we're talking to people. Are you all waiting for the Schmertz bus? Oh, yeah, we are. How long have you been here? An hour. Awesome. So apparently Schmertz was not expecting to rent any vehicles that day. So, and, you know, the kids are losing it. They're starting to lose it. We're out there. It's, you know, it's, it's hot. Everybody's jammed in. They're wearing their backpacks full of their devices and everything that weigh too much. So we're waiting. And finally we get, we get to, like, this one bus comes. And I swear to you, it's like those old movies that they would show a bus in India with people like hanging, <laughs> hanging off the side. It felt like that. And we didn't get seats. We're all standing up, which was awesome. And, uh, and so we're standing up and we get finally to the Schmertz place. And we get our vehicle. Okay, great. Everything on with vacation, right? We get about a quarter mile away, maybe like four or five blocks, and we're at a stoplight and we get rear-ended. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome, I said. No, I, maybe I didn't say awesome. So then we're on the side of the road in like the middle of Los Angeles by the airport. Uh, and we have to go through the whole deal. And it was literally like this guy even admitted, he's like, I'm sorry, I should have been paying attention. Right. You should have been. Sorry. So we're there for a while. So I called the Schmertz place. And of course, you can't get hold of the Schmertz people that you just rented the car from. They bounce you to the national line. They proceed to open a case for me. Not like that. Anyway. They, 
they, they open this case for me, and then they say, have you called the police? And I say, no. They're like, well, hang up with me and call me back after you've talked to the police. Awesome. Hung up, called the LAPD, who proceeded to basically laugh at me right on the phone. Like, wait, does anybody need an ambulance? No, okay, we're not coming. <laughs> we don't come, like, and then I was thinking, like, yeah, can you imagine in L.A., how many fender benders, a police officer? Yeah, that's... So then I try to call the Schmertz place again. I can't get to the Schmertz place where my car is rented from, only like four blocks away. I have to call the national number. And you think they would have known that the LAPD does not come out. But of course they didn't. So we went through this whole thing. An hour later, they're just like, can you just bring the car back to the, back to the place? We'll get you another car. And then by this point, I'm like, I think it's drivable. Like... We'll just keep the car and just move on with our lives. No. So we go back, back to the Schmerz place, and then we wait another hour for them to give us a car. Now, the kids, they're done. They are done. And, and then we get a car that's, like, worse than the car that we had. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't as nice, and we're all just like, yay. And finally, we, we get in the car. As it turns out, I forgot to add this in the earlier two suits. It turns out we were supposed to catch the boat that day to do my father's ashes, and we missed it because we were delayed by everything that happened. So then it's vacation, right? Hold it together, Jason. It's vacation. And then we did the thing that everybody says when something goes wrong. Well, if this is the worst thing that happens on our vacation, we're doing pretty good. No, but really... uh, and it was. It was the worst thing that happened on the vacation. And the end of the vacation, my kids said, this is the best vacation ever, which was awesome. But in that moment, I was experiencing some feelings. But then, once we got through that part, my attitude changed. Here's why. I said, well, hey, I'm on vacation. We have planned to have fun. Doggone it, we're going to have some fun. I'm going to let this go. And we're going to move on with life. Now imagine if that would have happened like here, like not on vacation. I would have lost my mind. Something about being on vacation gave me a little extra hope and optimism and willingness to just let things slide so that I could get on with my life. Because there was that moment in there, I'm like, why do we even go on vacation? But I think it's a great question. Why do we go on vacations? Because, I mean, the first thing is they are expensive. You know, nothing was better than when you were a kid going on vacations. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea how good I had it until I became an adult. You just get in the car. You get on the plane. You don't worry about what things cost. You're just on vacation. You don't have to plan anything. You don't have to drive anywhere. You just roll up, and everything's given to you. Man, I miss those days. Because we went to go visit, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse there at Disneyland. And I think during the time at Disneyland, I may have blacked out because afterwards I noticed that my wallet did not have any money in it. I think it's possible I was mugged by a <laughs> by one of the characters. Yeah, I'm like, I swear we had more money than this. Remember you brought three frozen bananas for $50. Oh, that's right. That's right. How silly of me. Right, but vacations are expensive. 
So why do we do it? Also, if you're working and you go on a vacation, uh, it creates a lot of work stress. I mean, listen, you're the most productive human on the planet two days before vacation. Get it all done. And then you got to deal with the stress of when you come back from vacation. Then there's travel hassles, which we have discussed. Or maybe even vacation disappointment. Right? Like, you come back from vacation, you're like, eh. Like, eh. Like, well, why did I spend all this money and time going on vacation? But why do we go on vacation? Because we go in with such joy and hope and optimism. And actually, like I said before, sometimes big challenges happen to us. But just because things, like I didn't get done with my Schmertz experience and be like, you know what? Uh, No more vacations. I'm just swearing off vacations. No. That'd be ridiculous. I feel like my life is better with vacations in them. Even though challenges may come up. Why do I go? Why do we go on vacation? Well, we go because we are looking forward to getting that rest, that sense of getting recharged. Getting away from the grind of life, whatever that grind is for you. And that's important. We don't want to give that up. That's life-giving. That keeps us going. Or we go on vacation because we want to get some distance and some perspective on our lives. Something about getting away You know this, all of a sudden, other things become very clear. Some of the biggest decisions I made in my life have been on a vacation or a snow day, actually. Because you're kind of forced to be away from the grind for a little bit to think. To actually breathe. And figure out what's going on in your life. And then actually the other thing about vacations, especially if you're kind of with your immediate family, if you got kids going on vacations, it's to... Be reminded and get reconnected with what and who matters most. So just because a couple of things go wrong, I'm not going to swear off vacations. That would be silly. Our lives are better, even though vacations are sometimes challenging. I think there's a spiritual correlation to this. about the Christian life, about the life of faith. Just because I experience some challenges in my life doesn't mean I just give up on God. That would be ridiculous. Because what God gives me, I actually can get from nowhere else. What vacations give me temporarily, God can give me every single day. Rest, recharging, perspective, Reminder of who and what matters most. And just because I still have challenges in my life doesn't mean that I just give up on the whole thing. Because people have asked me this question, and family members ask it to me in sort of like a passive-aggressive way. They don't ask it this directly. But they say things like, why bother with the challenges that come with a life of faith? Or, you know, why bother being a pastor? And, and what they'll ask questions like, You know, you could have done anything with your life. You know, kind of gone and made some dough. Like, why this? You're a pastor. You don't even ever get a weekend unless you take vacation. Why would you do that to yourself? 
Or hey, you've lost three parents you've buried. Your faith doesn't seem to be helping that out. Now they would never say that. People I love would never say that like that. But I hear what they're saying under their words. Why bother? If this life of faith involves sacrifice and trust and all these things that are hard, why is it even worth it? And what I say every single time with every atom in my body is I believe life is better with Jesus than it is without him. I can't put it any simpler than that. Simple, but not simplistic. It is very profound. I've lived my life both ways, very distinctly. One, one without Jesus, one with Jesus. I, you couldn't pay me all the riches of this world to go back. Never. Because what I can explain to you is the unexplainable, that even in the midst of life's challenges, all the things that happened to me, I have this persistent joy, this peace that I know isn't coming from myself. It's coming from the God who is in me. That I can have a perspective that when these challenges come, I think to myself, you know what? If this is the worst that can happen, I'm living a pretty good life and I'm going to keep moving forward. That's supernatural. That's because God is doing that in me. I have joy that acts like background music in my life. Now that doesn't mean I'm always happy. I think there's a difference. Sometimes I'm sad, sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I mourn, sometimes I am, am really excited. I, I mean, it's like the emotions are still there, but there's a joy underneath it all that never goes away. That even in my darkest times, there's a joy because of this relationship that I have with Jesus. I believe life is better with Jesus than it is without him, profoundly. I could respond to life's challenges with hope, and joy, and optimism. And I think this is exactly what the very first disciples were figuring out when Jesus ascended into heaven. And they're figuring out, okay, what does this look like now that he's not here? How do we live this life? What do we do about the challenges that come? Do we just give up on God? Or is there something else about this that is more important than anything else? When we go into Jesus' words, Jesus said in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, He says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So he says to the disciples, there are two really important things in that. The first is the Holy Spirit is coming to you first. You will have the power of the Spirit in your life no matter what. And then you are going to be my witnesses. So what does that mean? Of course it means what you think it means. Uh, To be a witness is to testify to, to what you saw, to what you heard, to what you experienced. So the Christian life is a life of witness. We testify. That's where you get the idea of in church, the church word, like giving your testimony. That's what that's about. I'm, I'm sharing with you what I have witnessed for myself about God's work in my life. But that word in Greek also has another connotation to it. So that word martyria in Greek is where we get the word martyr. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, he's saying, yes, you will testify that I am the good, good father and you are loved by me. But also, 
sometimes you're going to have challenges. You're going to have suffering. Someone's going to rear-end your car, so to speak. Things are going to happen. But I gave you my spirit to handle them. There's a moment, a story that I'm going to share with you today where this happens in dramatic fashion with the apostle Stephen. So here we go, Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Uh, scholars believe that this was a synagogue that was filled with uh, uh, Jews who were formerly slaves. So they were literally freedmen who had congregated to become this church. But apparently, they did not agree with Stephen and his teaching. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Can we pass that, verse 10? Go back. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So notice what's happening so far. First things first. Stephen was a man filled with the grace of God. Grace of God came first. Opposition came to him and the things that he was doing, the ministry that he had. And then what happened? The Spirit gave him wisdom. In other words, the Spirit, God is giving to him, to Stephen, in real time, what he needs to get through the challenge. That's something that many of you could attest to in your life. You had a time you didn't know how you were going to get through something. And when you're going into it, you're like, okay, God, I know that you're going to show up. I have no idea how. And then he does. In real time, he gives you what you need in order to get through what's going on. This is something that's so hard to explain to people who don't have faith. There's, because there's something I can't explain. <laughs> there's this supernatural peace and joy going on in my life. And all I could tell you is my experience of it is that God shows up on time all the time. He, he shows up in the way that I need that I probably never would have guessed. But the story doesn't end there. And I feel like for a lot of Christians we think that's the Christian life. So we have God, we go through a problem, God shows up, let's tie a bow on it, we love Jesus. Sing another praise song. That's not life, most of the time. The problem actually gets worse. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you notice what, what's going on. So God gives him wisdom, and he outwisdoms the haters. And the haters are like, we can't compete with that, so we're going to cheat. They persuade they stir up the people, they see Stephen, 
They produce false witnesses. Now, if that were going on with me, if I felt like I was being attacked, I would be a ball of anxiety most of the time. Just, just my default would be, I'd be really upset and anxious and worried. And then we get this really strange thing. He said that his face looked like the face of an angel. And I'm like, did they know what angel faces look like? I have no idea. I, don't, I can't tell you. What, what does that mean, angel face? Is that like precious moments? What is that? What does that look like? I hope not. <laughs> Sorry. But it's like angel face. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. All I know is that what it doesn't mean. He does not seem to be a man in that moment of challenge whose face is contorted with anxiety. It is a face that is supernaturally calm in the midst of the storm, who has peace and joy even, serenity in the midst of the suffering. And here's where we get to what it means to live a Christian life. It's not that we have this magic force field around us when we become Christians and every bad thing is supposed to bounce off. No, we experience suffering and pain just like everybody else who doesn't believe in Jesus. The difference is we have the Holy Spirit We have the Holy Spirit who is getting us through it one step at a time. Who is making sure that we don't drown in despair and anxiety, but that even we too would have the face of an angel in the midst of the suffering. So then, after that, you know, Stephen had a chance to back out. But what did he do? He gave a sermon. Bad idea. And his whole sermon was about (laughs) how they had all gotten it wrong. It was like a giant finger point. He he doubles down. Uh, Just watch how he says this to the people who are persecuting him. Like right in front of the leaders, the Sanhedrin. He starts off. (laughs) He doesn't start off. That's not true. He goes through his whole sermon. But this is the big punctuation mark. This is the climax of the sermon. Verse 51 of chapter 8 or 7. You stiff-necked people. Can you imagine if I got up here on a Sunday? I just let you have it. Some of you have been to those churches. (laughs) He's like, don't worry, that's not this one. You stiff-necked people. I don't know, he wasn't reading much Dale Carnegie. I mean, he had to influence friends, win friends, influence people. That's not how you do it. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, meaning you still don't get it. You th- Actually worse, you think you get it, but you don't. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. I love this line. This is great. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Like, I don't know who was advising Stephen at that moment. But like, dude, Stephen. Easy, bro. 
This is not like, I don't know if you're reading the room. This isn't, this isn't good. But he tells him, as hard as it probably was, I can't imagine it was easy for Stephen to do that. But the Holy Spirit was giving him the words in that moment. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, you think, and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, there it is again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Go back to that for a second. This, I think this is really interesting. There's a piece in this that I read that's kind of under the surface. At first glance, I think it means exactly what it says. Stephen looked up and he saw this vision of the glory of God and Jesus at his right hand. To me, it also speaks to when you and I go through hard times, when you and I go through suffering and challenges. That despite this crazy chaos going around us, if we keep our eyes fixed on God, we're able somehow to supernaturally get through it. That if we're focusing on God more than we're focusing on the situation, that's the secret to maintaining our joy. Not superficial smiles, but joy deep down, even in the midst of pain. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. That was the introduction to Saul in the book of Acts. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now this is obviously, this is a really dramatic moment. It's a very tragic moment. But here's the thing that I notice. And I see this as a parallel with how Jesus died. It doesn't occur to me at any point that Stephen is a victim. He seems to know exactly what he's doing. And that despite knowing how this is going to turn out, He trusts that God is going to be with him. Now, I don't know, gosh, we could spend a long time thinking about, like, would I have the courage to do that in the face of death? I don't know. I hope so. But I don't know that that's the point of this story. At least that's not the point that I'm talking about today. I think that Stephen believed that even death with Jesus was better than life without Jesus. Even death with Jesus was better than life without Jesus. That Jesus was everything. 
You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul said something very similar. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That there's something about this life that does not compare to the life that we have in God. Now, I think that God cares about this life as well. It's not just like this is a throwaway life. We have life on purpose for a purpose. He wants us to experience joy. He wants us to experience fulfillment and love and hope and faith. He wants us to have all of these things. But the best things in this life come from the one who is life. That Holy Spirit inside of us to live as Christ and to die as gain. So how does Stephen's story help our story of faith? What do we learn from his story that helps us as we walk with Jesus? I think a couple of things. The first is, you will experience suffering even if or even because you are a Christian. Suffering happens because it's life. And just because we experience suffering, we don't say, well, we just give up on God. I give up on vacations because something went wrong once. No. Because the second thing is that when it happens, trust is the key. That you trust that the Spirit will give you exactly what you need in real time. Don't give up. God's going to take care of you. And I have to say, I mean, that's that's definitely been my experience, my personal experience, you know. I've had a lot of tragedy and loss in my life, and many of you have as well. And all I can say is, the Spirit gives me what I need. I, I never would have gotten through it without him. It doesn't mean I was never sad, but but again, I had that joy, that peace that was supernatural. I couldn't explain it. And the more I focused on God in the midst of that storm, the more peace and joy I had. And then third, finding rest for your soul is worth it every single time. What do I mean? We can go on vacation to get some temporary rest, to get some temporary perspective, to temporarily reconnect with what matters most. But we get that every single day. No matter what's going on in our circumstances, we receive from Jesus rest for our soul. When we put our faith in him, he gives us a supernatural rest. He helps us to recharge every single day. He gives us a God-sized perspective on our lives every single day and reminds us of what matters most. How long are we going to keep chasing after joy? Trying to find it everywhere else but God. How long are we going to stop buying things to think that's going to do it? Or striving for things. It's not that buying and striving and chasing are evil. 
but they're just not going to do it. What we actually discover is that peace and joy and fulfillment are chasing after us. We just have to stop running. God-sized perspective. Reminder of what matters most. They're all right in front of us. We just have to let it in. This is a story that shapes my faith. I pray that it shapes yours. So we invite the band to come back up. Let me say a prayer for us. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, for the kind of life that we can live in you and that we don't always trust in it. Help us to trust more. Help us to rely on the well of your grace and love more than we rely on our own power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.